one of the things that, that we're specifically commanded to do in Scripture as a, as a church body. There are a lot of things that you know, we think go along with church that maybe were made up along the way or, or at best things that are described in Scripture but not necessarily prescribed or commanded. Praying together is one of them. And so when we get together, that's such an important thing for us to do. Um, I do want to just add one note to Shelley's announcements that I should have mentioned earlier. Is if you are not able to make the Church Life 101 class uh, next Saturday and the following, or if you uh, didn't get signed up for that, we're, we will be offering it again in July and in October. Uh, so it's, it will keep coming. You just want to make sure that, that you don't panic and you're aware of that. So as we uh, get started today and get ready to open the Word, uh, how many of you ever wrestle with doubts? Now, doubt comes in a lot of forms, right? It might be not quite sure if I'm good enough, if I'm up to the task, not quite sure if I'm fully accepted by God, maybe not quite sure if I know enough to be able to answer my friend's questions. Maybe I'm not quite sure I'm able to change. Say amen if you've ever dealt with any of those doubts. Amen. Would you like to be a little more confident in your faith? Would you like to be able to walk forward boldly? Because that's what we're going to be talking about for the next several months, actually. As we get into this new series, we're calling it Dear Theophilus. Hopefully you'll see why in just a moment. Um, we're going to be looking at the book of Luke. And we're going to start uh, with this introduction today to kind of get an overview of, of not just the book itself, but the writer and why. Brad, can you turn this down just a hair? I got a little ring from that game, I think. <clears throat> um, so... We want to take a look at why he's writing it. What benefit is it to us? How is it different from the other Gospels? And, and uh, why does this matter? So in, in walking through this, if you are employed, you know that some people, some people are better at their jobs than others, right? Maybe you've got coworkers that you wish were better at their jobs. Maybe you have coworkers who wish you were better at your job. Sorry. Sometimes it hurts. But the reality is we only get better at things we intend to get better at. We have to learn what the job is, and then we have to actually do the job and practice it. That's why sports teams and athletes practice a lot. My daughter's a gymnast, and I don't know if anybody practices more than gymnasts. I mean, it's so many hours that you're putting in because every little detail it's not just about your performance, it's about your safety. And if you don't get it right, if you can't do it boldly with confidence, you will fail. It's important to be able to, to be confident in what we're doing. I, I've always loved coaching, and uh, one of the things that I love about uh, baseball is, well, there are a lot of things I love about baseball, including the Cubs. But uh, one of the things that I really loved about coaching baseball is watching little kids, as you're trying to teach them how to field a ground ball. There are a lot, of, a lot of aspects of it, but fielding a ground ball is one of the things that I really enjoy coaching the most because I love seeing the progress. Over and over again, kids will try to reach down to the ball and it goes between their legs or they'll stumble. It's hilarious when they're real young and they do a somersault trying to get the ball. But as you teach it, and you teach the fundamentals of not just reaching down, but dropping your body, lowering your hips, and getting your glove dirty. Not that I always do that. Those of you who are on my softball team, you know I, I don't always do it, because knowing is only part of the battle. 
But when you watch these kids who do these boring, tedious things over and over and over again, and the light starts to come on. Until eventually, it just becomes the default for them. It becomes automatic. When you know what you're doing, and you practice what you're doing, and you understand why that thing is important, it changes how you actually live your life, play your game, do your job, or live out your faith. Luke is writing to try to fix that problem, to try to give believers the opportunity to raise their confidence. So let's turn to the book of Luke. Uh, it is uh, the third of the Gospels. The Gospels are the, the narrative stories of Jesus' earthly ministry. And they're at the beginning of the New Testament. When you get past all of the names in the Old Testament that you probably can't pronounce, you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, in the book of Luke, we find some, some unique characteristics. Each of the Gospels has unique characteristics. But one of the things that, that we really want to establish today, because it'll be a theme that runs through our series and through this book, but it doesn't come up every week, but it's the, the undergirding reason, is our core reality for today. That a confident faith requires a sure foundation. Right? you got to get your fundamentals down. It has to become muscle memory. You need to know for sure, not guess, not have a, a, a bunch of religious beliefs that you've been told you're supposed to blindly accept, but you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. A confident faith requires a sure foundation. Say that with me. A confident faith requires a sure foundation. By the time we get to the end of the book of Luke, I hope, I pray, that you will be able to say, I know what I know, and no one can shake me from my faith. Right now, maybe you're not at that place. Maybe you haven't come to a place where you have believed Jesus with your whole heart. Yes, you believe He exists. Yes, you believe in, in God and some uh, grand concept. And you might call yourself a Christian, but you haven't put all your weight on that. You haven't decided that Jesus is your everything. He's your confidence. My prayer for this series is that you will get to that place. By the time we get done, if you're a believer, you'll be a stronger believer. If you're not yet a believer, my prayer is that you will see a reason to believe and to give your everything to Jesus. So let's, let's take a look at the text. We're going to be looking at the first four verses of the book. Luke chapter 1. Here are Luke's words. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, let me read that again because I, I want to make sure that you know this. You might want to underline it. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. I would underline verse 4 if it were me. Let me read that again. So that you may know the certainty 
of the things you have been taught. Now, obviously that's the that last verse contains the title of our message today that you may know. It is the, the verse I'm challenging you to memorize because this is really important for us to get. God wants you to wrestle with truth. God wants you to investigate for yourself whether the claims of Scripture are valid, whether the things you believe are actually God's teaching or something you just heard in church sometime, traditions of men, whether it's something that mom and dad taught you in a, in a simple prayer when you were a child or a, a, a storybook. Is it just a fairy tale? Or is this a foundational truth that you need to understand? This is why Luke writes the book. He's writing for the purpose of establishing a foundation for faith for all the disciples, for all the believers, then and now, that we might know the certainty of the truth. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But before we do, let's talk about Luke and who he's writing to. Luke is writing this uh, as, as if it were a letter. He's writing this book, this uh, narrative, for a friend named Theophilus. Uh, it appears pretty clear that he's actually speaking to an individual, although the name Theophilus means lover of God, God lover. So it's very interesting and appropriate that his friend really sort of encompasses all of us. He's writing with the intention that his friend would have his faith strengthened, but also that it would be read among the churches as the other scriptures. So that it would bolster the faith not only of Theophilus the person, but of the body of Theophiluses, right? All of us together who love God and want to know truth. And his purpose here in writing it is that you might know for certain, for sure. The message translation says beyond a shadow of doubt that we might know the certainty of the truth that we've been taught. Now, Luke himself is an interesting character. Luke is a, is a physician, which puts him in, a, in an interesting uh, situation as uh, the writer of this narrative. Luke wasn't a disciple of Christ uh, among those personal direct followers. He comes along later. He's, uh, he's a Gentile. Now that's particularly rare. A Gentile, a non-Jew, doesn't generally write Scripture. We don't see that here. Most of the writers of Scripture are, are Hebrews, are Jews specifically. And they're writing to be able to carry on the faith that the one true living God has entrusted to them. Even in the New Testament, it's the same thing. Largely Jewish writers coming from a primarily Jewish perspective, so we see a lot of, uh, a lot of connecting the dots to the Old Testament in many of the, uh, in the New Testament writings. As we see that in Matthew's Gospel in particular, Matthew is a Jew writing for Jews, and he focuses a lot on the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. He focuses on Jewish genealogies to establish that Jesus is the Messiah. And he kind of hunkers down there. Now, when we read uh, the epistles, a lot of those epistles are written by the Apostle Paul. Paul, also a Jew. 
In fact, he was a Pharisee. He was a, a Pharisee among the Pharisees. He was like top holy guy, right? He's, he's got the study down. He understood the law inside and out. Had it down pat. So when Paul connects the dots to Jesus, he does so primarily from a Jewish perspective, even though Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, the special messenger to the non-Jews. That's his calling. He goes first to the Jews, gets rejected, says, okay, I'm going to go to the rest of the world, which was exactly what God had planned. Luke, on the other hand, is a Gentile. Uh, it appears that, that his father was Greek and he was, uh, uh, according to some non-biblical ancient writings, uh, it appears that he was from Thebes. Uh, we don't know for sure, but it does seem clear that Luke uh, is a Gentile. He is a, uh, a companion of the Apostle Paul. So as Luke is going through uh, his own development of faith, he's hearing the good news from others. Now, I don't know that I could legitimately say Luke was a skeptic, but aren't we all skeptics before we're believers? Luke would have done exactly what any sound-minded, science-oriented individual would have done. Prove it. Show me why this makes sense. Back this up. So he took the claims of the apostles, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and he investigated it for himself. Is this real? Now he says here as he's writing to Theophilus, I've investigated these things myself from the beginning. It's a clear indication. He's not talking about just researching it for this. But there seems to be a connection because he's intentionally writing an orderly account to shore up the faith of the believers. Unlike some of the others, Luke's target seems to be those who already believe more than those who are yet to believe. That doesn't mean you don't you know, use the gospel, to, uh, the, the gospel of Luke to share the truth with others. But his intent appears to be, I want to share this with believers so that those who are weak in their faith, they believe, but, but maybe they feel a little intimidated by others who have hard questions. Does that resonate with anybody? Does that seem like any of us? I don't know if I can answer that question. That seems hard. But they, they're telling me there's no resurrection of the dead. That's not possible. Well, Obviously, we know that's not possible. Luke, as a physician, would, of course, know that people rising from the dead, uh, that's not normal, right? So, without question, as a physician, he had to be really questioning this. So, investigation makes all the sense in the world. Now, for one who is trained in detailed observation, an orderly account is a good fit. God has this unique way of preparing his people to do his work long before they ever know he has a work for them to do. Often long before they're ever believers. Many of us here were developing the gifts that God wanted us to use as Christ followers way before we ever knew Christ. Maybe on your job, maybe in the, the family you were brought up in, you learned certain things, developed the, the, uh, the tendencies that you have, born with a certain personality, because God had something in mind for you to do. He does that with Luke. He takes what he will eventually use to write this orderly account and develops it in Luke in a secular setting. 
pretty cool how God uses the tools of normal life to do divine things. So he's a Gentile, he's a physician, he's writing to this friend for all of us, and his purpose is to strengthen the faith of believers, that we may know the certainty, the certainty of the things that have been taught to us. So it's interesting, the, the Greek combination of words there, and knowing the certainty, and depending on how it gets rendered uh, in the English, maybe you get it, maybe you don't. The, the idea in the Greek verb there is to settle a matter in your mind, to have it firmly established. The word that, that is rendered here, certainty, has to do with absolute, rock-solid, guaranteed, safe, secure, sure truth. So we know, not just to know for certain, but to know the certainty. Not only that I have it settled in my mind, but that I would know that whether I believe it or not, it's still true. How many of you realize reality doesn't change based on my beliefs? A thing isn't true or untrue based on whether I believe it. Now, whether or not I believe it changes how I interact with that truth, but fact is still fact. I can tell you that it is a bright, sunshiny day. I can call it liquid sunshine all day long, and you know it's still raining. Right? It changes how we interact with it, but it doesn't change whether or not it's true. Whether or not I accept that it's raining outside determines whether I dress for the weather, whether I take an umbrella with me, whether I go outside at all. But it doesn't change what the weather actually is. That's exactly what we're seeing here in the gospel. <clears throat> that Luke wants folks to know, wants Theophilus, wants real life to know, this is certain truth. Period. Whether anybody else believes it or not, this is fact. This is reality. And I want you to be able to confirm it in your mind so that what is already settled reality becomes your settled reality. That you're on board with it. We've talked in here numerous times about what faith is. We'll talk about it again in a moment. But it, ultimately, faith is aligning my thoughts with reality. So... Luke is writing this book. Let's talk about the book itself. Because he's writing this orderly account, we see a unique character, a, a different vibe, if you will, in the book of Luke. Each of the Gospels has a different perspective. Uh, many of you probably saw the movie Vantage Point a few years ago. Tell the same story from different points of view. That's what the Gospels basically are. Four guys observing the same thing, Four writers observing the same thing and writing what they see from their vantage point, from their point of view, inspired by the word of by the Spirit of God, writing through their own hand. And so uh, the book of Luke was written somewhere between 59 AD and 63 AD. How do we know this? Well, it's the intro to the book of Acts. It's basically uh, one story in two volumes. So the book of Luke would be like. Uh, Gospel of Luke, Volume 1, and the book of Acts would be the Gospel of Luke, Volume 2. This is, the, the book of Luke is telling us what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. 
The book of Acts is the continuation of that. What happens after Jesus ascends to heaven and sends the Holy Spirit? So the book of Luke is about Jesus, and you'll notice throughout the presence of the Holy Spirit. Luke mentions the Holy Spirit more than we see in the other Gospels. In the book of Acts, it's primarily about not the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is, what is the Holy Spirit doing? The helper that Jesus sent, what is the Holy Spirit doing? And we see that play out in the hands of the apostles. So as we see uh, Luke leading into Acts, the Holy Spirit's activity is already noted in the Gospel of Luke. Because he's writing specifically to give believers a foundation for their faith, a place to be able to to set their foot and stand strong. He is writing in a a very detailed way. So watch for this as we go through the series, as you go through the book of Luke, and I would encourage you to read uh, read it through completely as many times as you can as we go through this. But the book of Luke is very detailed. Luke gives names and places and descriptions of them as if his reader doesn't know these places, isn't there, uh, probably not living in, in Palestine, but maybe living in Rome or elsewhere uh, as the church has spread. So they need a little bit of a background to tell them, so what's, what's the deal with this place? You mentioned this place, but that doesn't mean anything to me. Well, it's, it's next to this, right? So maybe, you know, you're not sure where... Um, you know, you're not sure where New Troy is. But you say, well, you know, it's between Three Oaks and Bridgman and Galeen. It's, it's the center of the world, right? So you give these descriptions to try to help people who are unfamiliar with it know. He goes through these details and, and even gives a genealogy. But his genealogy, unlike others, doesn't just go to uh, the patriarchs of, uh, of Judaism. He goes all the way back to Adam. He goes all the way through to say, oh, wait, here's how this all connects together for Jew and Gentile alike. There are a number of interesting characteristics about it. It's very detailed, but it's also fast moving. He doesn't spend a lot of time in one spot developing the the different nuances. It's just the facts, ma'am. He's he's getting right to it. Mark is a very fast-paced action uh, action-filled gospel, and it, it's short and to the point and cruising through. Luke's is longer, and it's very detailed, but he's moving along. Um, as, uh, as Luke is, is developing this, we see a unique heart in Luke. Luke, more than the other gospels, focuses on the attention that Jesus gives to the downtrodden to the oppressed. He is uh, sort of the the equal rights gospel writer, if you will. Luke focuses in, in fact, you might write down perhaps a theme verse for the gospel is Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10 tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's after the story of Zacchaeus. Most of you remember the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Well, aside from the clever little song, Zacchaeus was a a hated person. He was a tax collector who cheated people. Everybody knew it. Nobody liked him. 
So Jesus comes, shows grace to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus repents and changes, and, you know, wow, awesome story. But right after that story, Jesus responds to Zacchaeus' repentance by saying, this, this is the real deal. Because I didn't come for all the good people. I came to seek and to save those who are lost. So while the purpose, the key verse in this book might be verse 4 of chapter 1, here's why I'm writing this. The theme of it, as we see this unfold, is Luke 19.10. It's interesting, all the Gospels record uh, the story of the woman anointing Jesus' feet uh, with perfume. Only Luke points out that she was a, a woman of ill repute, an immoral woman. He wants to make sure we get that Jesus actually cares about the people nobody else cares about. He focuses in on Jesus' relationship with women, with, uh, with those who are poor, really focuses in on that. More so, we see it in all the Gospels, but even more so in Luke. There's a heart to Luke that is different, that is unique. Now, we've talked about uh, Luke as the author. We've talked about the, uh, the book of Luke and what you might watch for. As you go through this, watch for supernatural movement, the miracles of Jesus. And bear in mind, as you are reading this and as you see these things come up, this is written by someone who is not innately given to believing in supernatural things. This is someone who wants to observe, a science-minded individual. Uh, most of you know uh, this past week when we were uh, on spring break, uh, Shelly and, and Emma and I went down to Kentucky to the Cincinnati area to uh, Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. And one of the things that I love about uh, those two Uh, those two things is that they don't shy away from the hard questions. Probably at some point, whether consciously or unconsciously, if you're like most people, you developed somewhere in your noggin the idea, the notion that faith is in contrast to fact. I believe... Therefore, I reject science. I believe i got to get it in my heart, not in my head. Have you ever heard that? People used to say that a lot in the 70s and 80s, and hopefully we've moved away from that a little bit. That, you know, it's, it's not just about the head, it's about the heart. you got to believe in Jesus in your heart. And there's truth to that. I need to believe in, in Jesus with my whole person. But it starts with my head. I have to make a decision. I have to make a choice. And that's where we want to go next. As we're working through this, we want to develop a confident faith. Why is is a confident faith important? Well, as Luke is writing this, bear in mind, he's a companion of Paul. He writes, the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison. So uh, somewhere after, uh, or somewhere before that point, he writes Luke. Probably very, very close to the same time. But we know for sure it's before that. So, Paul is beheaded in A.D. 64 under Nero. We don't see the persecution 
uh, of Nero, so it's probably before that. So sometime between 59 and 63, we, we would expect this to be written. What's Paul been doing? Throughout the book of Acts, we, as, Paul, as Luke records for us later, Paul is sharing the gospel and facing adversity. He's beaten and left for dead, stoned, left for dead, imprisoned. Uh, his, his rights have been taken away. His reputation has been taken away. He's uh, had to face hardship. He's got some sort of a physical malady. Uh, we're not told specifically what it is, but, but Paul relates to us that it was such a thorn in his side that he prayed earnestly for God to take it away, and God said, no. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And if you were with us recently in our study of Philippians, you know that Paul was unshaken by all of the circumstances going on around him. When people that he counted on betrayed him, people that he trusted to do things failed, when uh, you know, it seemed like everything was going wrong, when he was sick and shipwrecked, snake bit, literally bitten by snakes. So as Paul's going through all this stuff, that is not conducive to a smiley, happy, giddy, I love Jesus kind of faith. That's, that's not what we're talking about. And Luke, being with Paul, clearly is saying, man, we need more than the fluffy, let's just accept this and wait for more miracles kind of thing. Or we won't get through it. Later on, when we get toward the end of the book, you'll see what happens at the crucifixion. And many of you are familiar with this. When, when Jesus goes to the cross... His disciples, Jewish lads waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the overthrow of Rome, for the king to come and establish this new order, they're heartbroken. They're devastated. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Everything we've been counting on, everything we've waited for, clearly out the window. They're scared to death. They're, they're cowering together, just fearful that the... the Jewish leaders and the, uh, and the Romans are going to find them. And they're going to face the same kind of uh, end that Jesus did. And yet, at the end of the book, in chapter 24, the disciples are with Jesus, now resurrected. They've seen him. They weren't told about it. They've seen him. So there is a knowledge, a certainty to their faith. And the same ones who were cowering in the corner, Peter, who denied Jesus because he was afraid to admit that he was a follower to a little girl around a campfire, same guys in the masses as Jesus ascends into heaven, supernatural thing, a little freaky, a little weird, kind of an X-Files sort of deal. But they're seeing it. And with Jesus gone... They're not freaking out. Oh, what are we going to do? He's gone again. We're all by ourselves. How are we going to be able to handle this? Who's going to teach us? Who's going to lead us? Oh, no. What it says is they're worshiping. They're rejoicing. They know for sure. You and I need to be able to get from this point where we can be intimidated by somebody saying, well, you know, the earth can't possibly be 6,000 years old. That doesn't even make sense. Oh, Jesus couldn't possibly be God himself. Really, God? You believe he's the son of God? Really, you believe a dude was dead for three days and rose up from the grave? 
And sometimes we can be like, oh, you know, I, it's, just, it's just my faith. It's just what I believe. You know, it's, it's just what you know, the Spirit's impressing this on my heart. And we don't have answers. And when we don't have answers, and all we can say is, well, that's what I believe. It doesn't give us a lot of confidence, does it? And it certainly isn't going to win a whole lot of people to that truth. Great. You believe it. You know, I watch Space Jam, so I believe I can fly. Still not true. I'm not, I'm not uh, going to do that. So we need to build a confident faith. It's important for us to recognize that biblical faith is not blind acceptance. Biblical faith is not blind acceptance. If you have believed or you have been told or it's been something that you inferred that we need to shut off our minds to be able to accept the truth by faith, we've kind of done that. We've put rational thinking at odds with the faith. I need you to know this. That is not biblical. How can I say this? Well, aside from what we observe over and over and over again, Paul making a, a logical case for the faith through the book of Romans. Uh, we see over and over again the establishment of reasons. Isaiah the prophet says in the opening to his book, well, you don't have to take my word for it. Open it up for yourself. Take a look. The book of Isaiah is a little to the right of the Psalms. So if you open to the middle of your Bible, you'll find the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then Isaiah. It's usually pretty easy to find because it's one of the bigger books. That's why he's called a major prophet, because he wrote a lot. He's born to be a preacher. He's kind of windy. In the very first chapter, as Isaiah is uh, laying this stuff out, he's speaking the word of the Lord. Isaiah 1.18, this is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Now, if you have a, a newer NIV, this is a, an older edition of the NIV, the, the 84 edition. But if you have a 2011 edition of the, of the NIV, it says, come, let's settle the matter, right? Nod your head if you know that, that, that well, that's what you have. Is that right? We got settle the matter? If you have a New Living Translation, it'll say, also, let's settle this. Let's settle this matter. The English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, King James, uh, all have reason together. But the, the idea here is to rationally wrestle with and come to a logical conclusion about a matter so that it is settled in your mind. God is saying through Isaiah, look, I'm not asking you to believe for no reason, I'm asking you to believe because I've proven myself over and over and over again. There is a foundation for your faith. Now, making sure that we're clear about this, he's speaking this to Israel. Isaiah is saying this to his people Israel, to, to God's people Israel. They've seen and heard and been taught their whole lives the truth of God the law of God, the faithfulness of God. They celebrate the Passover every year, even to this day, to remember what God has done for them so that they might know 
the certainty of the things they've been taught. Now, unfortunately, the majority of, uh, of ethnic Jews in the United States w uh, are self-proclaimed secular Jews. So they're Jewish by culture, by ethnicity, but not necessarily because they adhere to the teachings of the Jewish faith. That's the majority of Jews in America. I can't speak to worldwide numbers. I just saw in America. And so that most of those folks still practice, to some extent, the cultural things like Passover or maybe celebrating Hanukkah because that's part of the culture. Much like most people in America, most Christians, and I use my, my manly little air quotes here so that we know I'm not talking about Christ followers, but people who would call themselves Christians just the same way uh, as the secular Jews we would be talking about practice Christmas or celebrate Christmas, celebrate Easter as if it were a fairy tale or a cultural phenomenon. But God doesn't give us that option for the Christian or for the Jew. He says, as he said to Moses, I am that I am. I am the be-all and end-all. I am ultimate reality. And the things that you perceive with your own wisdom, are not to be trusted as much as the things that I am telling you are real. Does that make sense that the same God who says that would say, come, let's reason together? Well, yes. In fact, the very foundation of Israel, when God changes Jacob's name to Israel, that name means wrestled with God or struggled with God. And God blesses him in that. Don't miss out on the significance of this. God wants us to wrestle with him. Not to rebel, not to reject, but to wrestle with him so that we own the truth, the certainty of who he is. Far too often in the history of the Christian church, we ourselves in the church have been our own worst enemy by discouraging critical thinking. In the olden days, pre-Reformation days, Galileo and others were told, hey, you know, don't, don't ask those questions. You can't do that. Here's the teaching of the church. Accept it. Just accept it. Well, eventually we get to a place where that's not good enough. If you're a parent, you know what that's like. In fact, if you're a grown-up, you know what that's like. You may have been taught things as a kid, but at some point along the way, it has to become your belief. If you, had, if you didn't get in trouble, see, I got in trouble a lot as a kid. So when I graduated from high school, I already knew who I was. My brother, on the other hand, never got in trouble. Perfect child, you know, never did anything wrong. So when he was in his 20s, he had to figure out for himself, wait a minute, do I really believe these things? Or am I just doing what mom and dad told me? Because that's easier. That's a hard place to be, to wrestle with. This is what I've always known, but I don't know if I know what I think I know. And I don't know if I know why I know it. 
We've got to come to a place where we have wrestled with it. We've sifted through it. We've worked it over. We've attacked the doubt. We've run into the hard questions instead of away from them. That's what Luke does. Saying, look, you need to know for sure that this is a foundation for your faith. So that when you declare, this I believe, it's not, well, I think I kind of believe this because that's what I was told I was supposed to believe. This I believe and I will not be shaken because I've investigated it myself just as Luke has. Luke can't be shaken. He's wrestled with truth. Paul couldn't be shaken. He wrestled with truth. Why does Jesus seem to be so calm? Not, not, listen, not Prozac Jesus from the movies, right? Not, not the, um, Jesus. No, not that. Not the, not the super effeminate, super depressed, you know, just kind of the downer Jesus walks along. Bless you all. That's not him. But when we read the gospel accounts, he's unflappable. You should write that down. It's a great word. Unflappable. Nothing rattles Jesus. Even when he gets upset in the temple and flips the tables, that's not out of control. That is under the control of the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes through all of the things that he faces, even to the cross itself. Never once wavers. Why? Because Jesus, more than anybody else, knew the truth. He is the truth. He stood before Pilate because he had already sat on the throne of God. He knew. Jesus was the word at the creation of the world. Everything created through him, by him, for him. He knew. When you know, not think, know. Not guess, know. Not believe in some mystical way, but you believe because you know. Deep in your knower, you know. Nothing can shake you. This is why I love, love science. We've been told so often that we can either believe science or we can believe the Bible. Right? Say amen if you've heard that kind of thing before. Right? We can either believe science or we can believe the Bible. And I say hogwash. Science, by its nature, the very definition of science is the observation of the natural world. That's what it is. To see and experiment and determine how things actually really work. Guess who made science? My father did. So everything I ever see in scientific evidence and observation always points back to its creator. Always. So maybe Christians should stop running away from science, stop running away from hard questions, and start to realize the difference between my observation of science or my, my view of science and the atheist's view of science is not the science. It's our worldview. Our starting point determines our conclusions. If I start with a worldview that says it, it can be any answer except God, then I can look at this evidence and say, well then, 
I know it can't be what the Bible says, but it could be anything else. <laughs> Not very scientific, is it? If I start with a viewpoint that says, okay, I know that the Word of God is true, I just don't necessarily know how all that works, then that still takes me to a specific conclusion, right? I, I make no bones about that. Absolutely believe God's Word is true, therefore God is the be-all and end-all, and science happens the way God says so. I can observe the evidence and not always know how that fits, but it doesn't change my conclusion. And it doesn't change the evidence itself. What is, is. Always. Christians of all people should know that. We should be the most intellectually curious people in the world because we believe, to start with, that everything in creation was created by God and points toward God. We should believe that psychology, rightly understood, points to the mind that God created in His image. So to rightly understand human psychology, we must understand God. Psychology and theology are not opposed to one another. Humanist psychology that starts with me and sees where God might be able to fit into that is absolutely opposed to biblical psychology which starts with God and tries to see how I work within His world. Does that make sense? So that's what we're looking at in Luke. Is how, how can we run into hard questions? How can we face adversity? How can we go to an unbelieving world that is biased against God with the confidence of knowing that this is the truth, that what I believe is right and rock solid? We're going to discover that as we go along. That's, that's the point. So uh, questions every disciple must answer. We've talked about some of this as we go. What do I actually believe? What do I actually believe? I have to wrestle with this. One of the things that plagues my mind regularly is how often we in the church have beliefs about God that we made up. They're not in the Bible. And we preface things by saying, well, what I think about God, what I believe about God, or my God would do this. Well, your God's an idol. I don't know what to tell you. You know, if, if your God is Baal, he's going to sit there and do nothing. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, I need to wrestle with it. Turn to 2 Timothy 2. We're back in the New Testament, jumping toward the back of the book. <coughs> 2 Timothy, chapter 2. This is a, a letter written from Paul. It's... Uh, the, last, the last thing he's writing here. He's in prison. He's going to be beheaded shortly after this. <clears throat> and in chapter 2, as he's writing to Timothy, <laughs> I love that Paul's focused. He's, he's single-minded here. He knows his days are coming to an end. His job now is to make sure that Timothy, pastoring at Ephesus, handles this and is able to carry on. Uh, Chapter 2, we're going to start with uh, verse 14. Keep reminding them of these things. 
of the, of the true doctrine. In fact, let's back up just so you can see what things he's talking about. Because when he's talking about these things, we need to see what. Look at verse 11. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It's of no value. It only ruins those who listen. Note verse 15 here. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. If you have a King James or another uh, older translation, it's probably rendered something to the effect of study to show yourself approved. This is the point. Do your best, study, to show yourself uh, to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. I need to know what I actually believe. What is the sound doctrine? In fact, a little, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a little later here, we see him uh, establishing the same thing. Uh, chapter 4. First four verses of, of 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing in His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Preach the word, Timothy. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires. They'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. I gotta know what I believe or I'm gonna be bounced around, carried away by every wind of doctrine, every new teaching, every new podcast or book or, or TV show that comes along. It was amazing to me when the Da Vinci Code came out. How many people had their faith rocked? Oh my gosh, I can't believe that all of Christendom must have been a conspiracy. I, I had no idea that the church had suppressed so much truth. Man, if we know what we believe and why we believe it to start with, then we don't get shaken by things. All of the things that were brought up in that movie had been dealt with in, by 300 A.D., had already been dealt with, specifically, clearly, addressed in the open. No secret society. No, well, we don't want to have this book involved because, you know, that gives a different picture of Jesus. No, it, there's, there was a sound process, and we don't have time to go into that right now, but we went, there was a sound process in the open that said, here's, here's the scripture. Here are the books that we believe belong in the New Testament because they were uh, written or ascribed to actual apostles who had seen Jesus. They uh, were in keeping with the, with the other Orthodox teachings. They were in line with the Jewish scriptures. They didn't fall away from this. They didn't have spurious uh, backgrounds. There's a, a group of books mentioned in that, uh, in that movie and novel uh, called the Pseudepigrapha. Basically what it means is false writings. <laughs> Things that claim to be from this person but really weren't. Well, I claim that, I, that I'm John or I'm Paul writing this. That's why Paul makes such a big deal of pointing out who it is that's writing. 
because other people were writing false gospels, false narratives. So they're establishing this. I need to know what I believe. We see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and following, you don't have to turn there for the sake of time, but uh, you might want to jot that down, Acts 42, really through 47, but 42 is the focus. As we see these uh, disciples gathered together at the very beginning, after Jesus has departed and the Holy Spirit has come, we see them doing this, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the doctrine, the sound doctrine, so that they would know what they believe. I have to answer that question. What do I believe? I also have to answer the question, why do I believe it? Why do I believe it? 1 Peter 3.15 says, Be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks for the hope that you have. Why? Why do you have this hope? Why do you have this faith? Why do you believe in Jesus? Why, is, why are you able to withstand all this stuff in life and not freak out? Be ready to give an answer. Know why you believe what you believe. If you don't know why you believe it, do you really believe it? Or is that just your mama's faith? Because it can't be your mama's faith. It's got to be your faith. you got to know for sure, for yourself, that you believe this with your whole heart. Because God has no grandchildren. Those who receive Christ have the right to become the children of God. Nobody gets grandfathered in. Nobody gets in because your mother taught you prayers at night. Nobody gets in because your mother taught you Bible verses or because you went to church all the time. You have to know. And for you to really wrestle with it, to investigate it, to be Israel, to struggle with God and own it as your own, you've got to know why. If not, you're going to be mired in doubt. You'll lack confidence. If I want to have a confident faith... I need to know what I believe. I need to know why I believe it. I need an understanding also of the next question. Why does it matter? Why is it important? Simply put, truth matters. I don't think I can say it more, more plainly or succinctly than that. Truth matters. <clears throat> I mentioned baseball earlier. I might mention sports occasionally. Um, Every time I've ever watched a baseball player, a batter, strike out looking, in other words, take that third strike instead of swinging at it and missing, having the umpire call them out because they thought it was a ball and the umpire thought it was a strike. There's one fact always true. They're out, period, because the umpire said so. It doesn't matter what you think, what is, is. And every batter always thinks that was a terrible call. Every parent of little leaguers always think that too, right? It's always a bad call. It's always somebody else's fault. It's always what I want it to be rather than what it is. Truth matters. We've heard so much in the last year and a half or so about fake news and... and 
all kinds of different things from both sides of the aisle. Depending on what story's being told and what you don't like about it, you might determine it's fake news. It's gotten to be so bad that it's really hard to tell ever what's true and what isn't. Who is telling us the truth? Because all the news outlets have clearly shown that they all have bias. Whether it's this way or that way, they all have a bias. Now that's always been true because humans aren't great at being objective. But we used to try. We don't really try. We say things as if it's true, whether or not it is, because it furthers our agenda. You can't afford that in your life. You can't afford that in your faith. You can't afford, maybe this is controversial, you can't afford a salesperson to convince you of something. We've had a lot of things that have been told us about health that isn't actually necessarily completely unbiased because we've been told that by drug companies who are making money off it. When you have a mechanic who tells you something that you, they can't really back up, but you don't really know because they want to make money off of you, it's a struggle. They have a vested interest in it. If a Republican tells you this, then they have a vested interest in that. If a Democrat tells you this, they have a vested interest in that. Why does it matter what you believe and why you believe it? Because ultimately, regardless of whatever affiliation or personal agendas or anything else, truth matters. If I believe in a fairy tale, my life will fall apart. If I believe that God says anything goes, I'm going to live like God says anything goes. Now, you're intelligent people. Does God say anything goes? That didn't sound very confident. Does God say anything goes? No. So if I believe that He does and He doesn't and I live according to my false belief, I'm going to be on the wrong side of reality. That's a dangerous place to be. If I believe that God wants me happy. Many of us believe that. We've been told it. There's lots of different, you know, gift things that we can buy that will tell us that. God wants me happy. But if that's not God's primary goal and I live like it is God's primary goal, I'm going to be on the wrong side of reality. And I'll find myself in opposition to God. I need to make sure that I am right I need to make sure that what I believe is, is true and I believe it because there's a solid reason for it. Um, turn with me, to uh, if you're still in 2 Timothy, back up to the left. Turn to the book of Romans. We won't look up a lot more verses, but I do want you to see this. If you accidentally go too far and end up in John, mark that because we're going there next. Why does it matter? Romans, we're going to look at chapter 1. It's interesting that Paul begins chapter 1 not only identifying himself, but identifying himself with the gospel, with the sound doctrine. Then he goes forward. And if you jump to... I'm going to have you start with verse 16 because I like it, but our point is in verse 18. So we're going to start with verse 16. 
And it speaks to Paul's confidence. Verse 18 and following is the point. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God. Now, that's not a phrase we use every day. So I want you to say that with me so that you can feel it in your mouth. The wrath of God. Not a pleasant concept. It's why we avoid it. We don't like unpleasant things. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the what? The truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, science, so that men are without excuse. Here's the problem. When we let our way suppress God's way, my desires, my agenda, suppress the truth, that's wickedness. And the wrath of God is being poured out and we are without excuse. Why does it matter? (laughs) Because the wrath of God leaves us without excuse and without rescue. Flip to John chapter 3. of books to the left of Romans. John chapter 3 is Jesus interacting with one of the Jewish religious leaders, a Pharisee, who um, slips away to be able to meet with Jesus at night. He obviously recognizes the opposition that's already going on. And he's curious. And he wants to hear from this rabbi who's teaching with authority and doing amazing things and saying amazing things Uh, But he's not quite convinced yet. He hasn't established this as his truth. But he was curious because it sounds like truth. He's investigating. And Jesus tells him that you need to be born again. What? How does that work? Listen, you're Israel's teacher. You get this, don't you? You get this. It's not enough to be naturally born. You have to be spiritually born. This was already a truth before Jesus came. So, Then in John 3, verse 16, you might be familiar with that verse a little bit. Jesus tells him this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, speaking of himself, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is actually the theme that we'll see over and over again in Luke. John is recording it here. But Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save those who are condemned. Notice what he says in verse 18. Why does it matter what we believe? Whether it's true? Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Turn the pages to chapter 14. John 14, 
verse 6. We'll back up to verse 5 for context. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, everybody say no one. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why does it matter? Because the Bible makes truth claims. That's what we're battling back and forth with in our world. Christianity, rooted in the Bible, makes very specific, exclusive truth claims. That there is one truth, one way, one life, and it's Jesus. And there is no other way to get to God but Jesus. That's a bold claim. By saying that, understand that the very nature of this word is that everyone else is excluded. Why do you think the world hates Christianity? Because you're telling me if I don't believe what you believe, I'm going to hell? Yes, absolutely. That's what we believe. But there is a way for you to be saved. Because I was going to hell too. He saved me. And he can save you. But if you don't know for sure that you believe this with your whole heart and you have a reason for this hope and you know that this is true, how in the world can you stand to make such a claim in the face of all the opposition of the world? Well, there are lots of sincere religions, lots of good believing folks, good citizens. Yes. And the Bible says they are all already condemned because they don't believe in the Son of God. This matters. This matters. The last question we have to deal with, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? I'm not going to have you look up scriptures for this one. We'll see those same scriptures as we go along in this story. What do I believe? Why do I believe it? Why does it matter? What difference does it make? In other words, now what? How shall we then live? If this is true, and I know it's true, and I'm standing on it because it matters, you're either in or you're out based on whether or not you believe these things, then what? How does that impact and affect my daily life? This is the question you have to ask yourself. If I believe these truth claims, what does that mean in my daily living? We'll see that play out throughout the, the Gospel of Luke. So I'm going to leave that question hang with you. And as we go through and we see what Jesus actually taught and what Jesus actually did and the difference it makes, it becomes really, really clear to us what the Christian life should look like. With that, I hope you come back and learn some more about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have 
You have given us a sure foundation. We read in your word that no other foundation can be laid except the one that was laid, the foundation of Jesus Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Father, it is increasingly clear as we know and understand your word from the law and the prophets to the gospels and the epistles and the revelation. It is increasingly clear that you have never had a plan B. It has always been as you planned it to be. From Genesis 3.15 you promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. We hang all of our hope on that. We hang our hope on the revelation that Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah of Israel. Our only hope of salvation, the only name by which we must be saved, the way the truth, and the life. Father, grant us by your grace and by the action of your spirit a certainty to know beyond a shadow of doubt the truth of the things that have been handed down to us. Help us to discover this as we go through the book of Luke. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we wrap